This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be now moving into time of scripture reading, where we'll open God's Word. Uh, we'll be looking at the book of Luke, chapter 13, verse 1 to 13. I'll give us all a moment to grab our Bibles, or we can follow along with the scripture that's on screen. Reading from Luke uh, 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. But those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door 
because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you, where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you, or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. This is the word of God. I will now invite Pastor Andrew up to give this sermon. Okay, um, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray for hearts which are open to your instruction and which are willing to really meet with you in your word today. Because they are really powerful words which are a great reminder to us. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, many years ago, I went to a cinema in the city. I think it was Capital Cinema in the city, for those of you who can remember it, very, very long time ago. And during those days, you know, I sound like a very old guy, right? They used to, instead of having popcorn, we used to have kacang puteh. You know what kacang puteh is? Peanuts, right? So there used to be always the peanut seller. So I used to go to get my kacang puteh before the movie. I'm there in cinema. I'm sitting down. I'm relaxed, ready to watch the show. And all of a sudden, I go from zero to 100. Because I realized I left my wallet sitting on the kachampute table. So I ran down the stairs, you remember Capital Cinema, and I got to the table and thank God we're such an honest country, our wallet was still there. I wonder whether you felt that sense of urgency before in the past. Maybe you've misplaced your phone, maybe you've lost your wallet somewhere, maybe you've dropped your keys, or maybe it's that assignment or that deadline at work that you somehow forgot to meet. Now, the reason why I ask you to remember that feeling of urgency is because this mood of urgency is what is undergirding today's passage, this mood of urgency. Now, this mood of urgency doesn't just come about by itself, but because of the context of what we read last week. So in the last section of uh, the passage that we saw last week, do you remember how Jesus talked about how he had to undergo a baptism of his own before he would bring fire of judgment into the world. And therefore, there was urgency to know the time, right? The time is now. Now is the time to seize forgiveness for our sin debts before the judge. Now was the time before the judge comes to pay for our sins. And so it's within that context of urgency, of seizing of forgiveness, that we come to today's passage. And so today's passage begins by saying, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So first and foremost, we see that the audience that was listening here were the same people that had heard of what Jesus said last week about the urgency of the time, the urgency of the time to pay for their sin debts. But what is this that they're asking of Jesus? Who are the Galileans? What is the blood? Who is Pilate? And what are the sacrifices? 
Now, I think a bit of uh, like background is necessary. So the Galileans were, were probably Jews who were making their way from Galilee, as you can see in the map, down to Jerusalem. And they were bringing with them their sacrifices. Right? They bring their sacrifices down to go to the temple to offer sacrifices to God. But somehow, along the way, we're not sure what happened. Was there a riot? Was there some provocation, some disturbance? The governor at the time, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, murdered these innocent people who were making their way into the temple. We don't know, outside the temple, in the temple, and they were dead, murdered. The question they're bringing to us, Jesus, now is why? Why is this tragedy happening? Why did God allow this cruel, murderous tyrant, Pontius Pilate, to murder these innocent people who are going to the temple to sacrifice? Now, Jesus replies, and I want you to notice his reply. He doesn't really answer their question at all, right? In a sense, their question is a bit intellectual, theological, and distant, with perhaps some political overtones, right? Why is Pilate doing this? But instead, as Jesus usually does, he turns the question around, and he turns their question into a challenging, confronting, personal, self-reflection question. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way. Of those 18 who died in another tragedy when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Now the point that Jesus is trying to make can be found in verse 2 and 4, right? So as God, Jesus can see into their hearts and behind the question, behind the question is the presumption that these people were worse than I am. They were more guilty, worse sinners, and therefore somehow there's this sneaking suspicion that they deserve to die, but I'm a pretty good person, and therefore I'm safe. And this is the danger in a sense of the I'm a pretty good person, right? Because in a sense, at the back of their minds, they think that this tragedy, this perishing, happened because they were worse sinners or more guilty. But Jesus rebukes them. In verse 3 and 4, look at what he says. He says, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Right? So what he's saying is this false confidence, false security is an imagination, is an illusion. It is a mirage, right? Because in a sense, there are no pretty good people. All people will perish. And Jesus repeats this idea of the certainty, right? That they will perish without a doubt, without exception. Every single person must repent. There are no, in a sense, pretty good people. Everyone is guilty. Everyone is a sinner. All must repent. And therefore, if you do not, you will all perish. Now the question is, what does this word repent mean? What does this word repent? Repent means turning around, turning away from self, turning to God. In faith in Jesus Christ, shown in action. That's what repentance is. But behind that is also the question is, how does repentance save you from perishing? How does repentance save you from perishing, right? Now, if we don't understand what that particular section is saying, it's very helpful to turn back to what Luke earlier said, 
And in the early chapters of Luke, in Luke chapter 3 in particular, when John the Baptist came, he touched on this topic of repentance, right? Repentance. So John the Baptist came preparing the way for Jesus and he preached a baptism of repentance. What for? For the forgiveness of sins. Through the repentance which leads to the forgiveness of sins, therefore, in Jesus Christ, all mankind will then see God's salvation. So within the book of Luke, within the theology of Luke, what it's really saying is, death, perishing, and sin are both two sides of the same coin. Right? Right? Death is on one side, sin is on the other. They're two sides of the same coin. If we sin, the consequence is death. Right? The consequence is death. So sin is the core problem. Death is the result. And therefore, there is this great need to repent, to turn to Jesus in faith and action. Why? Because through Jesus, you receive forgiveness of sins. And through the forgiveness of sins, then you will have salvation from perishing, salvation from death. Now, Jesus then goes on. Okay, so this is tied to what we looked at last week, right? That you need to seize this moment to repent. And that's a lesson that these people need to learn. Now, Jesus then goes on. He tells this parable, pretty straightforward parable on the surface. It's about a fig tree in a vineyard. Problem with this fig tree is that it has a history of fruitlessness. It doesn't bear fruit. Now, apparently, as we look in verse 7, for three years, the owner of the vineyard has been coming to, to look for fruit on this fig tree. Now, it's not as if the owner is an impatient man, you know, like he's unreasonable. Because apparently, when you want to grow fig trees as a commercial farming enterprise, you take three years. Like, within three years, the expectation is fig trees must bear fruit, right? So the problem is not with the owner being impatient. The problem is with the tree. The tree is the problem. The tree is sick or the tree has a problem. There is no fruit on the tree. And so the owner is reasonable. The owner has been looking for three years, but three years, no fruit. So the logical thing really is, if I'm the owner of the vineyard, I should cut down the tree. I should cut down the tree, remove the roots and plant another tree. Because after all, the tree is taking up space in the vineyard and taking out my precious fertilizer and resources. Now, the catch in the parable comes in verse 8, right? That's like the, the thing that brings clarity and insight to all of it. So, verse 8. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So what we see here is urgency. Urgency. Three years, logically you should bear fruit. I'm giving you another chance. This is your last chance. One more year. The one more year doesn't signify 365 days, right? It's like one more harvest season. There's one more chance of which the tree has the opportunity to bear fruit. Now, if this is linked back, and it is linked back to verse 1 to 5, then the fruit here must be the fruit of repentance. The people need to bear fruit of repentance. There's only one last chance 
there is great urgency in making that decision, right? That decision to repent, to bear the fruit of repentance. But I think that actually Jesus deliberately and intentionally brings in this issue of the fig tree growing in the vineyard. The fig tree growing in the vineyard. Now, this is deliberate by Jesus, I think, because if you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament helps us to understand this parable a bit more because in the Old Testament, the fig tree corresponds to the Jewish nation, to Israel. Right, the fig tree together with the vineyard is not a coincidence, right? It is like a pointing back to the Old Testament. So remember who asked the question? It was these people asking about the Galileans going to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the, uh, 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 their sacrifices in the temple, right? So these are Jews asking the question. These are Jewish people asking the question. And so Jesus is pointing them back to the Old Testament. And what is he saying? He's pointing them back to this fig tree because the fig tree is the nation. And so in Psalm chapter 8, it talks about how God brought the vine of the fig tree out of Egypt. He drove out the nations in the promised land and he planted it. He cleared the land from it and, you know, gave it opportunity to bear fruit. In Isaiah chapter 5, though, we see that in spite of God's best efforts to plant a vineyard, put the choicest vines and things like that, instead of having a good fruit, he only bad fruit, no fruit at all, right? Bad crop. And so what this passage actually does is it's actually telling these Jewish questioners that, look, the nation, the fig tree, has had ample opportunity throughout the whole of the Old Testament to bear fruit of repentance to God, to turn away from self and turn to God. And so this one year, in a sense, is like the last chance for the Jewish nation, the last chance of God's people to bear fruit of repentance through Jesus back to God. Now the application for us, obviously, is not that we are Jews, right? But the principle still stands. We may not be God's people, the fig tree in the vineyard, literally, but Jesus is also warning us as readers, Luke is also warning us as readers, that there is urgency in bearing fruit of repentance to God. I remember sharing the good news of Jesus with someone on a Tuesday, and by Saturday, that person was dead. Now, what was wrong? What happened? This person was complacent. This person didn't have the urgency to make the decision to bear fruits of repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. In his mind, this person thought, I'm still a pretty good person, right? But really, at the end of the day, unless you repent, Jesus says, Unless you repent in Jesus, you too will all perish. So there's great urgency to repent in Jesus. The passage then goes on in verse 10 to 17. It begins by looking forward to another time. We're not sure when. It was a Sabbath day, the holy day for the Jews. And Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, like the Jewish church sort of thing, right? They meet in houses, big houses. A woman was there, and we're told three things about this woman. She was crippled 
by a spirit, that's very important, crippled by a spirit for 18 years, and she was bent over and she could not straighten up at all. It was a really, really pathetic situation. She was just looking at the ground all the time. We're told these three important facts because she represents, in a way, a sad, tragic picture of demoniac enslavement, right? Satanic oppression and domination and bondage, right? And that's why when Jesus calls her and speaks to her, I want you to notice what she says. He says, sorry, you are set free from your infirmity. You're set free from infirmity. I want you to take that word set free and put, put it in the back of your mind because that's a really important word. We're going to come back to it. She was set free from her infirmity. It doesn't say heal, right? Set free. And as a result, she was straightened up and she praised God. The contrast is in the reaction of the synagogue ruler and probably the leaders and the congregation. Indignant they were. They were very upset, very angry, intensely unhappy, greatest displeasure because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. But Jesus right, had broken the Sabbath law. 39 categories of Sabbath law the Pharisees had created and Jesus had broken like multiple ones of them, right? But Jesus said to the synagogue ruler as well as the other people who shared his view, you hypocrites, right? You hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox and donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? And so within the 39 rules and laws of the Sabbath, the Jews had allowed for compassion. So if I own a dog, uh, I own a dog, obviously, but if you own an ox or a donkey, I mean, can you imagine for like one day I don't allow my dog to drink water? That's really cruel, right, to my, to my animal. Can you imagine, I mean, for those of you who are dog lovers or cat lovers, can you imagine if you don't let your cat or your dog drink for 24 hours? That's really cruel. And so, for the Sabbath, the Pharisees said, yes, you know, there's allowance for compassion. You can untie your ox or your donkey from the stall. That's work. Lead it out. That's work again. And give it water. And Jesus says they are hypocrites. They're hypocrites because they show compassion to the animal, but they don't show compassion to the human being. They value compassion to creatures more than the man or woman than humanity. They're hypocrites because they show compassion for their own things, but not for the things of other people. Their own ox, their own donkey, but not for the woman. I want you to notice what Jesus also says in verse 16. He emphasizes that the woman is not just an ordinary woman, but she is a daughter of Abraham. She's a covenant out of the covenant people, she receives the promises given to Abraham. So she's more valuable than just a normal woman. She's like part of the people of God. She belongs to God. She's a child of God. But yet, they are willing to show compassion to the ox or the donkey, but not this woman. Jesus then goes on, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years. 
Now, the, the Jewish people were willing to show compassion for 18 hours of suffering, but here they were unwilling to show compassion for this woman who had been bound for 18 long years, Jesus emphasizes. To be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. Okay, now you can take out the word set free from your, from your, uh, you know, your memory. So this is like a repetition tool, right? Jesus uses this word set free as a repetitive tool because he wants to emphasize to us what is really happening. And so what is happening on the Sabbath day? This word set free corresponds back to what we see in the book of Luke. When people are healed, the kingdom of God breaks into the world. In Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 11, remember when Jesus drives out the demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So what is happening on this Sabbath day is that it is revealing that this significant thing is happening. Satan, his kingdom is being pushed back. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world. So, through the healing of this woman, the kingdom of God is coming. And what better day for it to come then? The day that they remember God himself. God's kingdom comes on the day you remember God. But this word set free also corresponds to the mission of Jesus, to who he is. So again, in Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of his ministry, right at the very beginning of, at the start of Jesus' ministry, he goes to the synagogue and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he reads it, right? The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim freedom, to set free the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to release, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of God's forgiveness. And Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so what we see today is that Jesus, in setting free this woman, is truly fulfilling Isaiah. He is the one who brings freedom from satanic oppression and demonic bondage. He is the one who brings God's favor. And so when you think about it, the Jews and the synagogue leader thought they were honoring God, right? But actually, they were not honoring God. They were opposing God. They were, in a sense, honoring Satan, right? They thought that by, by setting these uh, synagogue rules about, uh, about the law and the Sabbath, they were on God's side. But she says, Jesus says, you are on Satan's side. You see, the Sabbath is a day for remembering God. And the people did remember God through what Jesus did. The woman praised God and all the people were delighted of all the things that he was doing. See, Jesus is the one, in a sense, who brings in the kingdom, who, who makes people remember God and enjoys God through the freedom that he brings. Jesus then goes on in verse 18 to 20 tells two parables, and again, the parables in their context must be linked back to what we just read, right? This incident with the woman being set free. So in the first parable, he speaks of a mustard seed, a little seed, right? He takes the seed, 
plants it in the garden and it grows to become a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Now, why are we to understand this? Well, I think within the context, we learn three things about the woman, right? But actually, we, we miss the first one. Actually, it's four things, right? Because this person is the woman. And as a woman in the, in, in the original ancient context, she was a small person. I mean, not that she was figuratively a small person, but compared to the religious leaders, she's a small, insignificant person. She's not like a synagogue ruler. She's not a man. She's hunched over, looking at the ground all the time. She would be a small, insignificant person. And so she, in a sense, represents the mustard seed because the mustard seed is like the smallest of the seeds. But through this small incident, this small person, what Jesus is saying is this mustard seed of a woman, in a sense, through this breaking of the kingdom through her, is going to become like this mighty, mighty mustard tree, as you can see in the picture. It's like so big, you know, it covers that little house there, right? And this tree, it says, is going to bring shelter to many. And I think this is very important. It's very easy for us to miss, right? This idea of shelter is significant. Because in the, again, in the Old Testament, keeps talking about this biblical theology of God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. So, through the biblical theology of God's people under, in God's place under God's rule and blessing is this idea of shelter. In Ezekiel chapter 17, it speaks of how Israel is going to become like this mighty tree and birds of every kind will nest in it and find shelter in the shade of its branches. And so what we see is that this kingdom that begins in such a small, puny, insignificant way through this woman, right? This, I guess, anonymous, very lowly woman will become this great tree and people who enter it will find shelter. They'll find shelter from, I guess, in this instance, demonic bondage, satanic bondage, but also from death, also from sin, also from judgment. The parable then advances to this parable of yeast. And, and yeast is a very different sort of image. Uh, yeast is mixed into dough, and there's a huge amount of dough, 26 kg of dough. If you look at your footnote right in your Bible, there's 26 kg of dough, there's a lot of dough, right? And they're mixing in all this dough. Now, the thing with yeast is it's put into dough to help the bread rise. But once the dough is mixed in, you can't like see the dough, uh, sorry, see the yeast in the dough, right? I mean, it's like all mixed in already. It's not like you can pick it out, right? And so this image that Jesus gives is a picture of unseen, invisible growth, right? It's like this inevitable, slow and steady growth within the dough, which is invisible. Now, again, the time horizon is very important. This woman and the disciples, compared to the Roman Empire, Pilate and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they are like, in a sense, very small and significant. But what Jesus is saying is, look, the kingdom of God within all these great structures will grow invisibly, inevitably, and steadily. So much so that today there is no Pharisee. Yeah, Pilate is long dead. The Roman Empire has passed into history. But 
we still see the kingdom of God growing even in places which are really inhospitable, like even like in North Korea. So as we look at these two parables, one shows extensive external growth that shelters. The other one sees unseen, invisible, inevitable growth. And so the lesson that we're supposed to say here is that it's urgent, repent in Jesus, enter the shelter of the kingdom of God, or enter the shelter of the kingdom of God. Now, we can now come to the last part. Jesus has now asked a question. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, Jesus then replies, and the, the reply in a sense is centered on verse 24, right? All of it is centered on verse 24. The, verse 24 is the only command of this section, right? Make every effort, right? Spare no effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Now, what is Jesus saying here? The details are very important and they shed light and illuminate what we've seen so far. Why does Jesus mention the narrow door? Why is the narrow door important? Well, I think within the context, the narrow door must represent repentance in Jesus Christ. That is the only way to salvation. The people who asked the original question, the Jews, they thought that there was another door, the door of being a pretty good person, the security of thinking that, uh, well, no tragedy will happen to me. But Jesus says, the only way to salvation is through that narrow door of repentance, the narrow door of repentance. And there is great urgency to come into that narrow door of repentance because many, I tell you, will try to enter but will not be able to. Now the reason is because there will be a time, an unexpected time, where the master or the owner of the house will get up and close the door. And the people will try at that stage to enter into salvation, but their door will be closed and they cannot enter. Now, there's a bit of confusion that's happening here, isn't it? Because in verse 26, the people who are on the outside, they think they should be inside. Right? On 26, they, they think they should be inside. We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. So from the perspective of the people who are locked out the door, they think that actually they should be in. They, they, they should already be inside. Now what does this mean? Why do they feel this way? Why do they feel that they should be inside? Well, eating and drinking is a picture of relationship or friendship. Especially in the ancient world, table fellowship was a very important thing. If you come and I invite you to eat with me and to drink with me, we, are, we have a relationship. And so the people feel that perhaps they have a familiarity with Jesus, right? You know, we ate, we drank with you. Jesus, you taught in our streets. So these people here, they listen to Jesus. They heard Jesus. They have knowledge of Jesus. They have knowledge of the kingdom of God. But what Jesus is saying here is familiarity and knowledge do not get you into salvation. Right? Familiarity 
and knowledge do not get you salvation. It is only through the narrow door of repentance that you receive repentance. And that's why Jesus says in verse 25 and 27, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Now, this idea of evildoers obviously is speaking to the lack of repentance, right? Faith in action. You need faith in action or else there is no going through that narrow door. That's why all of you evildoers. But I think there's something more to this, right? There's something more to this. Jesus deliberately uses this phrase, away from me, you evildoers. Now remember, he's speaking to these Jewish people here, okay? So if you look back again to the Old Testament, there is a direct corresponding Old Testament quote. And this Old Testament quote is very important. Luke chapter 13, verse 27 in the ESV says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. All you workers of evil. This corresponds directly to Psalm chapter 6, verse 8 to 10. I don't think this is accidental, but I think this is deliberate on the part of Jesus, and Luke wants us to pay attention to why this is here. The reason is because the way to salvation is not being a good person or doing good works, workers of doing good. But within Psalm chapter 6, what it's saying is David is being opposed, right? Persecuted by other people. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So what Jesus is really saying here, it adds light, right? It illuminates what Jesus is saying. Is that the failure, the failure to repent puts you outside of God. You're an enemy of God. You're an enemy of Jesus. And so if we think about it, right, what he's saying is if you enter the narrow door of faith and repentance, you will find shelter from sin, death, and judgment. You will enter into salvation, the kingdom of God. You'll be set free from bondage to Satan. But the failure to repent actually makes you an enemy of God's Christ Jesus. There is no Middle ground. If you imagine a, a doorway, right? You, you cannot kind of like be halfway in and out, right? You're either inside the door or you're outside the door. The failure to repent means that you are, have not entered. And in Jesus' eyes, you are the Psalm chapter 6 hostile enemy opposed to God. You are one of those evildoers. And then Jesus says, if you fail to repent when the door is closed, then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He doesn't tell you physically what's going to happen to you, right? But experientially, emotionally, on that day, the failure to enter, when you see people have entered, but you yourselves are outside, will be a day of great, great sorrow, weeping, gnashing of teeth. And so in conclusion, as we wrap up and we see this passage, there is great urgency. Great urgency. To repent in Jesus and to enter the shelter and the salvation of the kingdom of God. If you do not enter through repentance in Jesus Christ, you are not in. 
Now, this is very important for us, maybe if we come to church and we, in a sense, in a vicarious way or through the Bible, eat and drink with Jesus. We are familiar with Jesus. Through the Bible, we know of Jesus. But familiarity and knowledge do not get you through the door. It is only through the repentance, right? The repentance that comes from faith in Jesus and real change to be in Christ that brings you true salvation and shelter of the kingdom of God. So I hope that for all of us here, that as we really consider what Jesus has said today, that we will have all urgently repented. If you have not repented, you have not made a decision for Jesus, then today is the day to make that decision. We need to repent and to enter the shelter and the salvation of the kingdom of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to ask for your Holy Spirit to be working in our hearts. We ask that you will help us to be faithful to you and faithful to your word and the warnings that it brings. Dear Father, we pray that all of us truly will have urgently repented and entered through that narrow door into your salvation so that we may be with you for eternity and that great banquet in the kingdom of heaven. Dear Father, we pray. We pray for those, perhaps our friends, our family members, our workmates, our colleagues who have failed and do not yet enter into the kingdom of God. We pray that they may also see the great urgency, that they may, you may strip them of the illusion of being pretty good people, of that false confidence and security, but rather to help them see that all will perish unless they repent and turn to you in Jesus Christ. Pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for the sermon. We'll be now moving to a time of reflection and discussion. Uh, so we'll take about five minutes to reflect and discuss on what we've just heard. And we're looking on these two questions. One, have I entered the narrow door to salvation? And two, what actions might I need to take urgently? Uh, so we'll begin the time now. Just turn to the person next to you or behind you and uh, feel free to discuss. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.